Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. It's good to be with you today as we just continue where we left off from last week with Paul addressing uh, issues that were taking place during the worship gathering in the church in Corinth, um, to which it actually leads us to my question today, which is based on our text, does God care how we worship? Uh, Before I move a little further, I just want to shout out to our team from last week with all the work that went into our worship set and and filming with the trees and the drones and things like that. We wanted to give uh, you a little something uh, different. And also, I just want to say thank you and how blessed we are with the people that we have uh, to put everything together to make our experience just a a little elevated. But now today... um, back. It's, it's a little cold outside if you haven't figured that out. Snow sitting on the ground. Uh, I don't know about you waking up on Friday and seeing the snow kind of made me go, oh, but we're here so maybe I should start praying. We'll see. Anyway, today was to be the Sunday that the leadership of Seoul initially planned to begin to gather again and unfortunately when our city went to orange level, the leadership decided to postpone our gathering re-entry time until November 1st. So uh, that is still our plan, and I would be admiss to say that uh, there are numerous people who can hardly wait to gather under one roof, and there are still those who are willing to wait, and they're, <laughs> they're willing to watch the online component until this COVID craziness is well, over. So either way, uh, it's good to be in front of you, especially with today's topic. So let me ask you a couple of questions. First, um, here's, here's really what I want to ask is what should Christians do and how should they behave uh, when they gather together for corporate worship? And what is interesting is that if we were to take everybody and hear everybody's response to those questions, uh, we would have a number of different responses. Because we all bring our own biases to the forefront, Uh, You know, our staff come from a variety of worship traditions, which makes it an interesting conversation when I ask some of them their opinions on worship and what their experiences have been in preparation for this life lesson. And again, each branch of Christianity has its own ways of doing things when they come together to worship. For instance, if... uh, you would walk into a Quaker worship service. Everybody sort of sits in silence and they wait for the Spirit to prompt someone to say or do something. And sometimes an entire service will pass with absolute silence because no one is moved to do anything. You know, I've been in churches where women sat on one side, men sat on the other side. I've been to a couple of churches that didn't believe in using musical instruments in worship not even a piano or an organ. Um, and when it was time to sing, the, the song leader actually stood up and he blew into a pitch pipe and then everybody sang a cappella. I have to say this, the harmonies were amazing. But I've also been in Pentecostal and charismatic worship gatherings and uh, at the same time I've heard people speaking in tongues, interpretation of those tongues, I've heard prophecies going on. I've been to Presbyterian, Lutheran, Anglican worship gatherings where I sat through calls to worship, confessions of sin, assurance of pardon, a confession of faith, all of which would incorporate responsive readings and even drank real wine during communion. I've been to a Catholic service where the entire Mass was led by a priest and I needed and received guidance from a nun who saw that it was completely out of my comfort zone. And maybe you've been to a church where the sermon was based on a movie or has a coffee break in the middle of it. 
where people wore suits or dresses and or suits and dresses, or people wore jeans or shorts, right? Some churches, when they gather to worship, they have choirs, have a pipe organ, an orchestra. Others have a single worship leader. They have bands. They have a worship team. Some have incorporated all of them in one, and I've been a part of that one as well. Some churches do drama. They have skits. Some churches have artists paint or draw while songs, songs are being sung. Others have dancers, flag, ribbon wavers. Some churches celebrate communion every week. Others once a month. I can go on and on and on. And again, some of what we experience in church is cultural, and it has a hard time crossing cultures. For instance, in 1996, I joined 40,000 other pastors. I went to Atlanta for a massive Promise Keepers conference. I had the opportunity, though, when I was down there to check out some local churches as we arrived just before the conference started. I attended, and I'll never forget, a Southern Black Gospel Church. It was complete with a pastor who loved to yell into his microphone, and it was backed up with an amazing keyboard player accenting his every sentence. I enjoyed myself. I really did. It was just so out of my zone. And yet I would struggle to see how that expression would work in downtown Victoria, British Columbia, where I resided at the time. I've been to all types of churches, services, in Ecuador, in Indonesia, in Swaziland, in Russia, in Ukraine, the Dominican Republic, the Netherlands, England, the U.S., of course, Canada. And without question, cultural as well as personal and theological preferences all play a part with what an individual is comfortable with. With all that said, the big question today is what should characterize the church of Jesus Christ when it gathers together for corporate worship. And this brings us to our text of 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40, and the topic of corporate worship. So let me remind you of the context. The Corinthians were obsessed with the gift of tongues. Paul addresses this issue in the chapters 12 to 14. In the chapters 12 and 13, he lays a foundation for spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 14, he actually begins to deal specifically with the gifts of prophecy and tongues. The Corinthians' zeal for tongues led to some sort of disorderly conduct in worship. And this forces Paul to talk about and to address the need for, of corporate worship. And what should corporate worship look like? And have you ever asked that question? Because you should. You know, how, how we worship God actually matters to God. But also, we all come with our own biases. We all come with our own preferences. And however, though, we must worship God on His terms, not on our terms. And I believe that when we're gathering together as a church, our worship gatherings are supposed to be times where we realign ourselves to reality. And I need to be honest, though. Some worship services can go bad in various ways. And I'm not just talking about technology not working. Sometimes they can just be boring. Sorry. But sometimes they can be damaging, negative, and hurtful to the people who are in the community. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul's been dealing with a group of Christians whose worship gatherings were disorderly, they were chaotic, and damaging. Now the church 
was in all kinds of disarray. I called it a dumpster fire numerous times. And when we read through 1 Corinthians, sometimes it, you know, it feels like, uh, like we're having a tooth extracted at times, right? This long, drawn-out and painful affair. And the, these things, though, were written for our benefit as much as theirs, though. We have to remember that. We have to remember Proverbs 27, 6. that says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Paul is the friend. He's addressing the issues that need to be addressed, and it's hurting his listeners. Paul is rebuking the Corinthians. He is applying correction, and he doesn't care about them. Uh, not, not, not because he doesn't care about them, sorry, but because he deeply cares about them. And so he continues, and you can pick it up with me at verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? Paul begins to sum everything up here. He's about to drive home the point. And, 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 and what exactly has been the issue from chapter 11 to now? It's actually been disunity. And Paul paints a picture of a worship service where people are speaking all at once, you know, shouting for the floor to get attention. Some in tongues, some are prophesying. No one's able to hear what the other people are saying uh, or even understanding what some people are saying. And these assemblies that that they've been having have been very chaotic. They're they're characterized by selfish disregard for others and an indifference to holiness. And it reflects really badly on Jesus. And so Paul says, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. And so this is the bottom line for Paul. Everybody has a potential contribution. We all have something to give. But it's to be ordered and filtered with one question. And here's the question. Will this build others up. The, the, the misuse of prophecy, speaking in tongues, or any other spiritual gift are symptomatic of a much deeper issue that's going on here. They're not the heart of the matter. Paul is not bugged about the gifts. It's deeper than that. Paul is pressing them to stop. Stop with their petty arguments that create disunity and selfishness that permeates throughout the church. See, everything that is done in, in public worship gatherings should be done for the edification of everybody. It's not about preference. And that's a key. It's not about your preference. I don't care if you like this music or that music. That's not, it's not, this is not what Paul is talking about. The list Paul gives is not a list of items every church service must include. Rather, he's saying whatever you do, including any and all of these things, it must be done for the edification of the people that are coming. You know, it would, it would be strange for most of us, but there are congregations like the Quakers or some of even Brethren churches that, that don't have a pastor. And, and many of these churches, they don't even have a prepared order of worship or a order of service, depending on what you want to call it. And so when people come in, they come and they'll sit quietly and they wait. And as I said earlier, some will feel... You know, they wait and they, until they feel prompted by the Spirit where they'll stand up and they'll say what's on their heart. You know, one may suggest a hymn, um, and so everybody will turn to that hymn and they'll sing it together. Uh, they'll resume sitting quietly. Somebody else will maybe feel prompted to read a passage of Scripture, and then they'll continue in silence. Somebody else may suggest another hymn, or somebody else will have a word of exhortation. And, and that's how their worship service goes. 
And if it's all done respectively and it's all done by the leading of the Spirit, it can be a wonderful, worship and worshipful and meaning, meaningful expression and experience. But imagine if you had someone or several people who attended that service who are not led by the Spirit at all, and they jump in and they do what they want during that time. Well, obviously, it would be utter chaos. The point is that the gifts are for strengthening the church. It's for the common good. And at Corinth, there were too many ego trips and there was no order. It was happening all at the same time. It amounted to disruption and confusion. And there was and is, though, a proper way to exercise the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And under the inspiration of that same Spirit, Paul lays out the guidelines. He tells us how. He says, if anybody speaks in a tongue, two or three at the most, should speak at one time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. I think that's pretty clear. The Corinthian believers seem to have known who among them was capable of interpreting tongues. Like they knew who maybe had that gift. But if on a given day none of them were present, let's say, in the assembly, then even if somebody felt that they had something to communicate in tongues, unless they themselves had the gift of interpretation, they were to control themselves and keep silent. They were to pray within themselves. Why? Because as we learned earlier, uninterpreted tongues don't edify the congregation. You know, I remember being a worship leader at a Pentecostal camp. Yes, I led worship. I surrounded myself, though, with people like my wife who knew how to sing. I was just a figurehead. But I had worship at a Pentecostal camp, and at one point in the, in the service there, somebody erupted in a tongue. It was a quiet moment. I, I wouldn't even say it was out of order, but somebody erupted in a tongue. And once that person finished, I actually picked up my Bible, and I began to read this passage out loud to everybody. And then I just said, we're going to wait and see if there's going to be an interpretation. There was none. And so I read the passage again with the emphasis on the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Now, understanding in my culture, in that culture, at that time, I was scared to death because I had never heard anybody in a Pentecostal or charismatic circle to tell somebody in a gentle way to shut up and sit down. I thought I was going to get run off the grounds at the end of this service, at the end of the night. But yet what I found was a number of people who I would call elders of the faith. They came up to me at the end of this gathering and they looked at me and they said, well, I just want to thank you for what you said and what you did. Which to me was actually a sort of confirmation at the time. As a leader, as one who was in control of a worship gathering, I had to take control and, and risk what other people could say or do. And the same is true where, where prophecy is concerned. Paul continues on in verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. If a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop, for you can prophesy in turn so that everybody could be instructed and encouraged. Once again, 
Paul says that there was to be no free-for-all, but rather there's a sense of order that should take place in our gatherings. He then adds two very critical points, the first being that the congregation has to weigh carefully what's being said. And evidently there were those who uttered words as though from God that were actually inauthentic. Now no word of prophecy is to be automatically regarded as correct and authentic. You know what? Paul says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-22. He says, don't quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. And hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. There's a litmus test. And while we shouldn't despise the prophetic utterance, at the same time we're told to evaluate each one carefully. And even as prophets speak, even as I speak to you right now, Others are to judge it. Others in the faith are to weigh it out. Everything should be careful consideration by the leadership of the church, by the body of the church, present at that meeting. John even says in 1 John, he says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Paul writes again in Galatians 1, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Even if an angel from heaven were to come with a message, it must be tested and judged. So, by what standard should a prophecy be judged? Well, first, it should be judged according to the Scriptures. God will never contradict himself. And it's also wrong to assume anyone perfectly hears from God. And so it's also wrong to put too much trust and faith in what people are saying as they're communicating on behalf of God or in the form of a prophecy. The biggest question that we have to ask is do the scriptures back up what's being said? Now, why is this important? Because there's always a danger to when we, we spiritualize ourselves too highly. That's human nature, right? It wasn't long ago where here in Canada this, this, there was a prophetic movement. I won't call it, say what it is, but there was actually there's been a couple. These prophetic movements taking a place across Canada, taking a place across the U.S. And people identifying themselves as prophets who seem to be speaking to just about everyone on just about everything. Numerous people claimed to receive the gift of prophecy and they began to ply their trade, so to speak, amongst anybody who would gather around to hear them. And what I've seen happen is that people began carrying little notebooks around filled with their predictions, if I could say that, that, that were delivered to them by these prophets. People would flock to these prophecy conferences that had begun to spring up everywhere and crowds would rush in with hopes of being selective to receive more prophecies and added to their already ex- existing lists. And it wasn't long before a trail of devastated believers began to line up outside counseling offices or actually walked away from the church completely. Young people... Young people promised, you know, success and stardom through prophecy were left up picking up the pieces of their shattered hopes because apparently God had gone back on his promises. Pastors of churches were deluged by angry church members who 
had received prophecies about these great ministries that they would have, but they're frustrated because the pastor of the church failed to recognize and facilitate these new anointings that they have. And after a steady diet of the prophetic, some people were rapidly becoming biblically illiterate and choosing a dial of prophet style of Christian living rather than studying Scripture. You know, and many people we saw were left to continue to live from one prophetic fix to another, right? Their hope was always in danger of failing because God's voice is so specific in pronouncement and yet so elusive in fulfillment. And too often, many Christians today are so totally preoccupied with our wishes, our wants, our desires, that we have little time left to seek what God desires. And what is worse, we tend to think that this is the way it's supposed to be. When we go to the Scriptures, if we go to the Scriptures, it's to discover some word of comfort for ourselves and for some solution to our personal issues. You know, that, that would be all right if first our souls had been tuned to what, the things that God wants for us. And the way it is, often we end up ignoring the whole ranges of the Scriptures because we are not interested, and that's, that's not good. We ought to be so consumed with a holy hunger for God that we are curious about anything the Scriptures say because if it interests God, it interests us. But there's also another standard to judge prophecy, and that's the standard of agreement. In 2 Corinthians 13.1, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. See, that's actually a principle repeated at least six times in the Bible. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. God will confirm his word to the heart of the leadership present in the meeting. Therefore, a prophecy may be judged and designated by the leadership within the community. Is that right? Is that wrong? Let's, let's sift it out. You know, let's get two or three people to be weighing in on the issue here. And unfortunately, some segments of Christianity here in the 21st century are so personality-driven that there are certain men and women claiming to be prophets, claiming to be apostles, claiming to be whatever, and who consider their own prophetic utterances infallible. And there are many sheeple who automatically just give them a pass when they come off completely wrong. But apparently you would dare not question the authenticity or else what happens is that you'd be labeled as divisive or as having a contentious spirit or not filled with the spirit or even a Holy Spirit denier. But Paul says, no, weigh it out. And then he adds something very critical here. The spirits of the prophet are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. And so it's interesting here, because this passage itself, no one can claim that they can't control themselves. I've heard this response before. Oh, I, I, I can't control what God is doing in me. Well, to suggest otherwise is then to accuse the Holy Spirit of generating chaos. See, what we see here is that people are still in control of the exercise of the gift, even when the Holy Spirit is moving on them. The Holy Spirit does not take control like a demon does in demonic possession. 
And that leads to the question, well, how do we explain the actions of those who, and maybe you've heard people who bark or shout or writhe or jump or act weird, supposedly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Well, that's a good question, Jerry. How do you answer that? Ah, be prepared to be offended. Emotions. An error in teaching and understanding that teaching. Mimicking. That's all they know. Actually, maybe even resisting the Holy Spirit in a true sense of the word, and this leads to stress in a person's life and it finds an outlet in strange actions. I think that there are actually many different answers to that question that I can't solve today. But I'll just say this. If there is confusion and disorder at a church meeting, it isn't from God. God may do things we don't understand. And the things that seem strange or even unpredictable to us. But there will not be a general atmosphere of confusion or weirdness. Some in justifying their strange and unbiblical practices at church meetings. You know, I've even heard this say, they've declared this, you know, a, a spiritual principle per se. That, you know, God cannot reach the heart without offending the mind. That's unscriptural nonsense. And it results in the attitude that, you know, the more confused and crazy and weird it is, the more it must be from God. Again, let me stress that verses 28 and 32 make it clear that both the tongue speakers and the prophets have control of themselves and must not speak unless proper conditions are met. It's a violation of Scripture for anybody to simply blurt out an utterance in tongues or blurt out a message in prophecy. That's not how it works. There is a sense of order when the church comes together. Let me take it a new step further. Nowhere in the New Testament Scriptures do we have an example of somebody speaking directly as the voice of God, which some people in some circles would, acting as prophets, right? You know, we could use the examples where people will say, well, this is what the Lord says, but there are no examples of anyone speaking as God in Scripture. And, and when, when we hear people doing it today, that's playing the God card. And those of us who have had some experience in the charismatic or Pentecostal circles are all too familiar with someone standing and, and saying, you know, oh, my children, my children, and addressing the congregation in some sort of old King James style of voice. Uh, no. Now, to be fair about this, the New Testament is a comparatively brief book. It was never meant to be seen as an exhaustive record of all that was said and done by Jesus and the early apostles. And so just because we don't have a specific example of something doesn't preclude its possibility. I get that. But when it comes to walking in the ministry of prophecy, doesn't wisdom dictate that if you're going to err, you're better to err on the side of caution and reverence for God than rather err on the side of arrogant presumption. The bottom line here is that everything needs to be in order because God neither causes nor approves of chaos in the assembly. He's very clear that God is a God of peace. And now we come to the passage that everyone would just as soon leave well enough alone and avoid it if at all possible. You know, controversy, controversy. Women should remain silent in churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, 
for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. My, how this verse has caused a lot of wounds. Many scholars observe that these two verses actually in, um, interrupt the flow of thought in, in the letter. And there's some reason to question their authenticity, um, and if not their authenticity, at least their placement in the passage. And that's a whole textual criticism that I'm not going to get into. But many scholars will point out that the Old Testament law does not forbid women to speak in services. And so indicating that Paul did not write these verses, uh, you know, as he knew that the Old Testament law well. One commentator, one that I actually frequently use and enjoy, he actually concludes that these verses were added later and were probably not uh, part of Paul's original thought. However, one commentator, most other commentators, I should actually say, disagree, and they argue that these two verses are authentic, and, and there's nothing, nothing to be scared of just because they're in there. In that whatever Paul means, he's not giving a universal ban on women speaking in the church. See, the golden rule of biblical interpretation is that the absence of any overriding factors, if the natural sense makes sense, seek no other sense. All right? That absent of any overriding factors, if the natural sense makes sense, seek no other sense. But there are overriding factors here when it comes to looking at this passage of Scripture. The first overriding factor is that the Word of God is not misogynistic. Women are given honor in the New Testament, far beyond any works of literature from any other time period. And so for us to take this verse in an absolute literal way and to apply it universally as though it applied to every assembly for worship, you know, would be to interpret it in a way inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. Now, people may argue that by being literal about it that they are simply being more faithful to the Bible. Because there are some churches that, that hold this tight. And what they're actually doing is actually ignoring the context and then doing so a disservice to biblical interpretation. Secondly, God's word is never self-contradictory. If women are to always remain silent in the assembly, then how do we explain the fact back in chapter 11, verse 5, women are mentioned right alongside with men in the context of the proper way of praying and prophesying. Those are not silent activities. Prayers and prophecies are what? They're spoken aloud. So let's consider the context. When individuals in the assembly prophesy, those words need to be weighed carefully and even evaluated as to whether or not it is consistent with the Scriptures and the character of God. The ones who would evaluate it would obviously be the elders or the, 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 uh, the, the pastors and it, among them. And have you ever tried to focus on something extremely important in, in the midst of a lot of chatter? Well, good luck with that. It doesn't require a doctoral degree in women's studies to know that women are more verbal than men in most cases. You know, as a guy, we, we just want to fix the problem and move on. We, you know, as least amount of words as probable, can I just fix it, fix it now for you, and then we can move on. But women, no, 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 no. They want to explore. They, they, they want to know how everyone feels about the problem, right? And I'm sure I'm being overstating, but, you know, there, there is truth to that idea. 
There's also truth to the idea that men maybe speak 25,000 words a day and women have a minimum of 50,000 that they have to let go of. It's a joke, people. Relax. So now take that into the context of the assemblies of believers where we find ourselves. Now, historically, in Jewish synagogues, men and women would sit apart. Men on one side, women on the other. During that time, if a woman chattered or called out to her husband sitting on the other side of the room, she would actually be dealt with severely. Now, the Corinthian church may have adopted the same kind of seating arrangement, but uh, now you have women from Gentile backgrounds. They did not know how to conduct themselves in a church meeting. And what Paul is doing, he's now teaching them how. And as wise King Solomon observed, there's a time to speak, there's a time to be silent. It even happens in our own gatherings. When elders are attempting to evaluate the legitimacy and, and weight of a message maybe that somebody has uttered, you know, somebody says this is what the Lord said, they need silence in a place in order to do so. We have it in our own gatherings. There's a time to speak and not there's a time to sing. There's times for prayer. And verse 35 holds the key to understanding what Paul's talking about. He goes on, he says, If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. I think the, the first clue is the first phrase. You know, Paul, listen carefully, because Paul isn't referring to the positive contribution that women are making. He's referring to a response to what is being already contributed. Contributed. Now the problem appears to be in the way that they were responding to what was being taught. And these uh, were apparently married women because Paul is writing to a specific church and because Paul says that they need to ask their husbands at home. And this is probably the biggest clue to what Paul is talking about in this section for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. One female commenter commentator. She points out that Paul uses the Greek verb laleo, uh, which means to talk, to question, to argue, to profess, to chatter. And he says that, she says it has nothing to do with prophecy or prayer. It's not public speaking as such. I agree with her, and other males have said this as well, but in our North American culture, it can be difficult for us to understand this because as she goes on and elaborates, in shame-honored culture, shame is a big deal. And this section likely has to do with women who were shamefully interrogating their husbands during the prophecy part of the service. This would make sense in light of this section coming right after the part about prophecy, also in the light of the main point of the passage of orderly and edifying worship. It just makes sense. And so if wives were curious about what was going on or if they had their opinions about it, they were to wait. Paul just says, look, wait and talk to your husbands and you go home. Go talk it about that. That was their culture. And yes, Paul felt that women needed the extra reminder about the need for silence in that context. That doesn't make him a sexist, nor does it make the Bible uh, misogynistic. Let's remember that this is the third mention of situations in which individuals are told to be silent in the assembly. The other two were found in verses 28 and 30. 
So this isn't a diatribe against women, as some critics of the Bible would have us believe. If we take the time to see it in light of chapter 11, it becomes apparent that women did have a role to play in the churches, both in teaching and in prophecy. This is not reg- yeah, regulating of women to a lesser status, but it has to do with chatter and how it has that capacity to dis- disrupt an otherwise orderly service. I've preached enough life lessons to know that even a quiet discussion between a husband and wife somewhere in the room is enough to distract and disturb not only the entire room, but even me as a communicator. And there is, of course, a a very modern practical solution to this issue. And I speak to you who come to Seoul. When you come to Seoul, soon, hopefully November 1st, bring a notepad. You know, we, we have them for our servant leaders. We provide them for you. Bring a notepad. Bring a pen. Take notes about the life lesson. And when you go home and you're having lunch, you can compare notes. You can ask questions. You can learn from that. Again, this is all about order in the gathering. Unless the Corinthians think that they're the exception to the rule and that they can operate in the prophetic realm by some sort of different standard than all the other assemblies, Paul actually chides them and he looks at them and he says, look at, or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it's, it has reached? And so we have to be aware of any attitudes of arrogance that would make one think that they actually know better and that these standards are maybe for the, the less enlightened or the weaker people, right? Paul writes, he says, If anyone thinks that they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anybody ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. You, you see, because... I'm sure you've seen it. I see it all the time. Some people think that if they're really spiritual, they don't have to obey God's word on these matters, right? In their own minds, they are so spiritual that rules don't apply to them. How dare you question them? You know, but if we're truly spiritual people, we'll stick to the word of God. This theme of humility sort of runs through all of that, and we won't go beyond that. And so Paul isn't making a suggestion here. There is a biblical standard for order in the assembly of God's people. And it has to be regarded as from the Lord. Some of the Corinthians and even many people today regard themselves as prophets and and think that this rule doesn't apply to them. They consider it beneath them to have their prophetic utterances weighed and balanced and evaluated for the consistency with the word of God. And Paul, basically, what he does here implicitly is he warns of God's judgment on such people. And then he concludes, My brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So, remember that when we come together as a church, it is far better for you and I to come with the attitude that I need to be a blessing to somebody else. Therefore, prophecy is much more useful than tongues, according to what Paul has laid out before us. And though Paul will carefully regulate the use of tongues in the church, he does not forbid it. So the forbidding of that is actually an abuse. 
The gift of tongues is not to be despised. It especially has a valuable place in our personal devotional time, but the gathering at church should emphasize prophecy and mutual blessing. God is a God of order and peace. He wants order when the church comes together, when the gifts of the Spirit are given. And uh, if we give them an unscriptural focus, it discredits the true work of the Holy Spirit. And it often leads people to now go out and deny the gifts completely because they see unbiblical excess or misuse. Spirituality and orderliness in worship are not mutually exclusive. But order is actually the final word. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul condemns those in Corinth who aspire to prophesy, and the same is true of the gifts of speaking in tongues. Not condemns, commands. Paul commands. I just said a boo boo. Paul commends those in Corinth who aspire to prophesy. And the same is true of the gift of speaking in tongues. And these are generally good gifts from a good and loving God. And I have to admit, in an age of so many flakes and counterfeit spirituality, it's, it is difficult not to be a bit jaded. I know at times I am. Here I am, a, a, uh, I refer to myself as a closet Pentecostal. Um, and, and part of it is that sometimes I just see the abuse and I shake my head. And I think that's the challenge for all of us. I think we need to make sure that we don't become hard of heart when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. We need to be open to them all. But we have to remain open to whatever God wants to do in our midst. You know, I'm grateful that the authoritative word of God tells us not to simply accept uncritically everything we hear and claims to be from the Lord, but we're to weigh out the messages carefully. I'm grateful that the same one who gives the gifts of the Spirit to the church is a God of order, so that while, while allowing ourselves to be tender before him, he can speak to us through one another. My prayer is that Father... Help us be devoted, but also help us be discerning as a church. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this moment with thanksgiving in our heart. You have loved us. You love us now. You will love us always. And we praise you. So touch our hearts afresh with the reality of your life, of our future in you. Touch our hearts too, Lord, so that we would want to be involved in what, what you're doing on earth. That we'll not be satisfied to simply stand on the sidelines and watch others minister, but that the Holy Spirit would come upon us and show us how we are to be at work and what our faithful responsibility is in the body with the gifts that you have given us. And help us, Lord, as an entire church family to really be the people who build one another up in the faith and who care enough about another to take the time to build them up. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our midst. And we ask for your presence in a very special way now, even as we are at home watching this. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Soul Sanctuary. 
Go now with your trust in the good shepherd and let us love not just in words, but in truth, but also in action. May God be at your side, even in valleys of death. May Christ Jesus be your cornerstone in life and may the Holy Spirit abide in you and tend you with love and mercy all the days of your life. Now go, trusting in the name of the loving Father, the resurrected Son, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now go in peace and live the church. See you next week.